So one more point I wanted to make on this this idea of creeds and confessions. Um, I guess I should say just the creeds from these councils, what I mean to say. Especially the first six, where we would agree the conclusions, at least, the main conclusions. Um, I think a lot of people, they'll, they'll get this impression that, well, if you want to be with the historic faith, not recognizing all the stuff we've been discussing so far, you got to go to a church that has it central. For some reason, that will rarely include denominations like the OPC and the URC <laughs> that are considered, right? Um, but I, I wanted to just point this out that I'm not even sure that's true. Because once again, if liturgy defines the meaning and the scriptures are a living text to be interpreted, whether you want to lean into a particular theologian like John of Damascus or the councils that you choose and select or the living voice in the church with the bishops, unless we disagree with them, in which case it's unfair to quote them. Um, <laughs> right? Uh, so, <laughs> and then of course, what, what if, I have to point out, they also point out that the lives of prayer are an authority as well. Uh, just the lives of monks and ascetics. These lives have authority, end quote. Um, still, listen to what he says about creeds when you actually see how they function as he's trying to explain to us. The creed we need to remind ourselves is not a list of things to believe. It is itself a liturgical text. Just sit on that. that what, what's the first word we believe? Yeah. I, I mean, once again, notice it's about the experience of reciting it. It's how it's God being felt by us. It's, he says it's part of our initiation into the new life of the baptized or a life or it's not a summary of things to be believed. That's what Andrew Louth says. Yeah. Now, I, I would just point out, I think creed should be a part of our worship. Absolutely. Recited every week. But I would just say, is the full divinity of Jesus primarily a liturgical issue? <laughs> is the aesthetic's not just right if he's not fully God. Or is it a truth issue and the authority is the scriptures? And you've pointed out in your video on Rome, many of your videos, the hero that Athanasius was, and even against the Bishop of Rome and councils and synods that were ruling against him saying, this is what the scriptures teach. This is what the apostles taught and documented about Jesus being the mm -hmm. word made flesh. And I just think... That has to be called out. I can't let an interview on this go by with us. It's, that's shocking, honestly. The more you think about it, the more you realize, yeah, if Scripture's not enough, everything else starts to decay. And, you know, you can ameliorate that with a Tylenol that is, you know, pietism or social issues for the liberals that we often deal with here, right? Make, make the gospel about social justice or something like that. But at I, the end of the day, is it the faith delivered once for all to the saints? I encourage you to read, um, I, the, the title escapes me, but Joshua Shooping's um, book on leaving Eastern Orthodoxy. Interesting. Uh, he, he talks about um, the, the classic liberalism that was taught in terms of the Bible, that you know, we don't know who wrote the Bible. We don't, you know, it's classic Bart Ehrman kind of stuff was being taught in their seminaries. Uh, one of his... One of his professors left on vacation and came back a different gender. Uh, you know, people think that because they're dressing up in a in a odd way, 
They have these images that look old, that they're really a bastion against the current pressures. Reality is they've just enshrined a certain culture. It's not biblical, and it's not really standing up to, you know, uh, Putin is standing against uh, some things that he should stand up against, and we should be um, encouraging, at least in those areas, that, yes, um, until the Supreme Court decision back in 2002, sodomy was illegal in most states until they declared a, a right to sodomy. That sounds like an Anthony Kennedy decision. I'm just guessing. It's a <laughs> you, you, you must be psychic. Yeah. <laughs> we so, all have the right to define our own meaning and whatever. That's it. That's he's the Eastern Orthodox Supreme Court judge. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes argued we had a living constitution, and therefore it could mean whatever we wanted it to mean. Yeah. It's 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 the same lie being right. repackaged. Over and over and over. I mean, it goes back to the garden. Hath God said. Yeah. And, you know, we don't accept, uh, you know, we, the, the fundamental rebellion of man was to ignore God's word. Uh, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, uh, delightful to the eye, desirable to make one wise. Uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. That's the, that's the, the, the lie of Satan has always been, you cannot trust God. Yeah, and to find another authority. Yes. Um, it's, uh, and that comes through in a Gentile way, right, in the idolatry that's a little more easy to identify. Mm-hmm. But it can be harder to identify for a Christian who yeah. thinks they're beyond that. Well, the Pharisees were considered the moral religious Jews. Right. And Jesus says, you're of your father, the devil. Right. Their traditions weren't meant to pursue greater holiness. They were meant to undermine real holiness. Mm. They, they made a greater show so they didn't have to look in the mirror at themselves for what they, in the mirror of God's law. That it's not just the externals, it's the heart. Um, Phariseeism was a scam. Mormonism is a scam. Eastern Orthodoxy is a scam. Nominal, you know, by the way, I guess I should qualify, Orthodox Presbyterian, um, when we were basically forced out of the main line back in 1936, they came up with the name Presbyterian Church of America. They sued us, and we were small denomination. We didn't have the fun. They were taking all our buildings and didn't have a whole lot to fight. What do we call ourselves? Orthodox simply means right belief. Right. Um, we're not Eastern Orthodox. We're we're old school Presbyterians. Uh, what does that mean? It means that we look to God's word to define things. And we take great comfort that we read it like many in the early church read it. Uh, We don't see them as infallible. We don't see ourselves as infallible. Uh, We recite the Nicene Creed. We sing the Gloria Patri, the glory be to the Father. Uh, We read the law. We do what the church has been doing for most of 2,000 years. 
not because it's new, it's novel, we dug it out of a hillside somewhere, but because this is what faithful Christians have been doing, and that that has been persecuted. We point out, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, the, the triumph of Orthodoxy was the triumph of emperors using the sword to silence or exile those who oppose them. Uh, Jovinian was flogged, along with his followers, exiled from, from Rome under threat of death. Uh, Wycliffe um, died before they could, could kill him, but um, his bones were dug up and burned, and uh, Huss was burned at the stake. Uh, you go down the list, it's what you see with Eastern Orthodoxy is a baptizing of the state. For people who've come out of a dispensationalism that was expect, you know, was expecting Jesus to come in 1981, 1984, 1988, and various other times since, and you know they recognize that handing the world over to the to the pagans has not created a good place for their children and grandchildren. The temptation is to swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme and uh, embrace a Christ of culture. And Eastern Orthodoxy, you know, um, there are a lot of people who think Putin is the is the model of a Christian ruler. If you're comparing him to Biden, you know, he can seem attractive. Um, you know, he's re- on a few issues. Right? He's he's rebuilding churches. He's suppressing. Uh, some things that he at least doesn't hate us. Yeah, he's yeah, not. He's, yeah, yeah. he's not in open warfare against us. And the reality is, of course, a, yeah. um, we uh, we probably could not minister there um, because uh, we would be viewed as you know, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or some you know some restorationist sect um, by the government because the Eastern Orthodox don't want anyone challenging them. So, you know, they continue to use the, the power of the state to silence their critics. Um, thankfully, things like the, the YouTube video we made, uh, it can be watched in, in Russia. And that's, you know, I told you there's a fellow in Archangelisk, I think is the way you pronounce it, probably butchered it, but um, he's the one that sent me the, the, the priest blessing the, the new monument to Stalin. Why would they do that? It's a baptizing of the state. It always has been. It doesn't mean, you know, dispensationalism makes Constantine into an antichrist. Eastern Orthodoxy makes him into a saint and equal to the apostles. I think the, I think the truth is in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether he was a Christian. If he was Christian, he was confused Christian. But so are we all to some degree. God deals with him. I think the king should recognize he rules under the lordship of Christ. But you're looking at you're looking at two two different flavors of the same basic error. Legalism and antinomianism are the same fundamental error expressed differently. Both of them deny the new birth. Legalism says, you do this, you do that, you do the other, and then God will accept you. Then you'll be born again. 
Uh, cheap grace says, so, you know, if you, if you don't drink and you don't smoke and you keep the word of wisdom and you do all this, if you, if you adorn this dead tree with green leaves and uh, with fruit, it will make it alive. Wrong. The idea that you take a dead tree and say, well, it doesn't matter whether it bears fruit or not, it's alive. Yeah. I walked, I walked an aisle on a Billy Graham crusade 35 years ago, and yes, I've been living as a total pagan, but they told me to question whether I was saved was to call God a liar. You can, uh, they told me that I could accessorize my salvation by making, you know, I'd made Jesus Savior, now I was going to make him Lord. Wrong. Both are denials of the new birth. It's just different forms of the denial. They're two sides of the same coin. Right, and you need Paul and James yes. to aim at the entirety of that problem. And honestly, Paul is a whole lot more uh, circumspect than people try to make him out to be. Right. Yeah, I um, I remember even just the first time I noticed, he calls the law spiritual. <laughs> I, I, must, I, I must not be understanding something when, about... I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a good debater. Uh, I've, I've done a few debates because I knew, I knew they needed to be done, and that was the best that we could do under the circumstances. But I, I debated the pastor of First Baptist of Salt Lake a number of years ago. Uh, he's a northern a, liberal... Yes, right. yeah. yeah, American Baptist. Yeah, um, my, my Southern Baptist brothers uh, would want nothing to do with this guy. But my one of my personal favorite moments in the debate was he said he would tell Paul to his face he was wrong. <laughs> See, I get the sense uh, Trenum thinks that's Luther. Um, he, yes. he knows better, but that's how he frames it. Trent, Trenum's a liar. I, yeah. I, I'll give a lot of people leeway. I don't go around calling names. Uh, Trenum knows better. He spent three years in uh, biblical seminaries. Uh, he was a licentiate in the Presbyterian Church of America, uh, which is a newer form. Uh, when we got kicked out of the, the Northern Church, um, we had a very similar name, Presbyterian Church of America. When the, Southern, when the conservatives split from the Southern Church, and then the two mainline groups merged together. Um, the Southern Church is the Presbyterian Church in America. Mm. PCA. Mm-hmm. We're the OPC. So. Right, right. And uh, God's sense of humor, right? Ended <laughs> up with the Yankees. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm resisting a tangent on what's going on with the PCA in Utah. But anyway. Um, yeah, the role of the church is what? To preach the word, administer sacraments. No, it's to do social justice. Okay, um, I want to hear. There, there, there yes. are even here in Utah, there are some that are trying to do the former. Okay, good. <laughs> good to know. Yeah, I just saw the website of one. So, um, okay, I want to hit the Protoevangelium of James now. To to frame this one. Now, with John of Damascus, we picked a very important, important meaning, impactful, not necessarily right, uh, John of Damascus of the fathers. Uh, In fact, I think he's sometimes called the last of the Greek fathers. Yes. And uh, so key to the East, like so incredibly key to them. Well, see, they don't have a pope, so they they have to have infallible councils. Yeah, right. 
And he's, he is he the basis the of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Right. And so they will openly point to that. Now, the Proto-Evangelium of James, what, what makes this different, of course, is this is a text from early Christians, I use that word loosely, um, claiming to be written by James, the brother of the Lord, the one who mm-hmm. wrote the epistle that we have um, in the New Testament. And why is this this text so key to their traditions? With the rise of asceticism, Mary becomes more and more the focus of their faith. Mary becomes the, the prototypical ascetic, and they root it in the story that you find in the Proto-Evangelium that at the age of three, she was, um, I mean, I guess I should back up until, essentially, Mary not only has a, uh, gives mirac- birth miraculously to Christ, she was miraculously born to a barren mother. Um, at six months old, her mother puts her down, and she, she takes uh, six steps, I think it was. Seven? Or seven, maybe seven. seven it's, yeah. Enjoy your youth. <laughs> she takes a number of steps that were... Very precocious for a six-month-old. Right. So she takes her back up, determines she's too holy to touch the ground until she's dedicated in the temple. And so she is taken to the temple at the age of three. She runs up the steps and is led by um, Zechariah, who's supposed to be the high priest, into the Holy of Holies. And she lives there until she's age 12. So she lives nine years by herself in the Holy of Holies, contemplating. Uh, the, the story gets elaborated later. This is how she gets, she becomes the model of asceticism. She, is, she spends all these years in contemplation of God, and she is miraculously provided for, fed by an angel. Um, how how she um, deals with her spent food is not really gotten into. But basically at the age of 12, uh, as she um, enters adolescence, um, they're concerned that they don't want her to defile the Holy of Holies uh, through menstruation. So she leaves the Holy of Holies, but she, she spends nine years living by herself in this thing. This becomes the model. A lot of, um, I didn't, we didn't have time to deal with it a lot in the video, but basically you end up with um, some of the early mystics living like in a cistern or something like this, but eventually they would have, uh, monks and nuns would have themselves sealed into, into their cell with only a slit. Um, Alexandra was a fourth century ascetic who, uh, because her beauty tempted a man to lust, she had herself sealed in a, in a tomb with only a slit for uh, food to enter and maybe other things to exit. But uh, she lived there for over 10 years until she died. But essentially, um, the Proto-Evangelium had its own purpose, I think, that you can get from reading it. It becomes very, very important later with asceticism. 
one of the important things to recognize is even during the lifetime of John, you had uh, Gnostics who denied the incarnation. And um, Marcion becomes a, a major advocate for this in the beginning of the second century. He's condemned in 144. And the idea was that for God to become man means God is so much holier, sin is so much worse than we would ever imagine. What they wanted to reduce the cross to was what the liberals wanted to reduce it to, which is it's, it's a divine drama. And it's supposed to convey moral lessons to us, but God, but God didn't actually become a man. Um, he didn't actually suffer. He didn't actually die. John, uh, the Holy Spirit through John, denounces these and these people as antichrist. Um, there, there, there. The term is actually used. Um, people try to connect it to people in the newspapers today, but it's actually the term. <laughs> anyway, specific. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is the spirit of Antichrist. There have been many Antichrists. John says, you know, there's an Antichrist to come. But, you know, here, here's, here's clear Antichrist. And it's those who are denying Christ came in the flesh. It's a denial of the gospel. These are people who, who claim to be Christians, claim they love Jesus, claim all these various things, they're denying doctrine. And what does the Holy Spirit say? You're an antichrist. You're not a confused Christian. You're, you're not uh, a brother. People are to have nothing to do with you. There is, this, this is a denial of the gospel. When you understand that the Gnostics were wanting to deny the physicality of Christ, I think this makes a whole lot of sense. Because essentially in the Proto-Evangelium, which is a second century work, you have Mary not just being a virgin before she uh, gives birth to Jesus, but during and after as well. And so, you know, you'll get them appealing to Ezekiel or something like this, you know, the, the um, but I think that understanding the times that part of what, I mean, it's, it's a clear counterfeit and we'll deal with that in a moment, but I think part of what motivated it was to present this story of Jesus where he's not really real. Yeah. You know, he's not really physical. And you see that, um, you know, you, you mentioned 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 15 earlier. Paul says, if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we're all men to be most pitied. You know, we're still in our sins. So um, the, the idea that Mary continued a virgin, become, she becomes the, um, uh, the model of the ascetic, not indulging in, in food, not indulging in, in uh, marital relations. In this, this text, um, there, there's a, well, let me put it this way. There's a book that's pretty popular around here that largely relies on it and indeed says things like, um, that clearly Christianity was oral, 
<laughs> before textual, <laughs> and that it would be more fruitful to look at the incidents in the Protoevangelium that cannot at the moment be explained and recognize in them a measure of how little is known of the background of the Christmas story. And um, it, um, Margaret Barker is, of course, who I'm talking about. Um, she says, the story and the way it is told all fit into what little is known of first century Palestine. And closer study shows how close it is in spirit to the earliest understanding of the Christmas story. So, uh, Jason, why is Margaret wrong in seeing it as evidence of a shared tradition that Matthew and Luke do something different with, but is common to all three? Well, this... The story contradicts the biblical Gospels. It also contradicts Judaism. It contradicts all historic fact. This idea that Mary um, lives in the Holy of Holies flies in the face of everything we know about uh, uh, first century Judaism. She supposedly leaves at 12. In the earliest manuscripts, it it appears some things have been added to make her older. I think she's 16 when she's supposed to conceive. The earlier ones actually had her conceive. Didn't have that, and so it appears she conceived at 12 in the temple. And uh, she is taken by this older man as a guardian, um, Joseph. And when she is discovered to be pregnant, she undergoes, uh, supposedly she and Joseph uh, undergo this test of bitter waters. It's prescribed in the book of Numbers. And uh, both are are declared innocent. Mary um, has her child, uh, delivers Jesus by this bright light appearing, and Jesus simply appears. And when this midwife comes, um, this other midwife who's already there tells her about this, and she doesn't believe it. And so she physically examines Mary and finds out she is still a virgin. Um, How do we know that this is not so? Well, Tertullian in uh, around the year 200 basically said that this is a Gnostic idea. That if you you deny that Jesus... uh, uh, Yes, she was a virgin when she conceived, but I, I don't have the quote in front of me, and it's one of those things you want to be very careful how you phrase it. But basically, um, most uh, women lose their virginity in conception. He being physically um, being physical, she lost it in her delivery. Uh, he identifies Joseph not as some guardian, but her husband, and she becomes a model of matrimony uh, for Tertullian. He denounced uh, the, these Gnostic ideas uh, very, very early. He's um, This probably goes back uh, to the mid-2nd century, you have people quoting it. Origen recognized it wasn't really from James. Uh, but he, he, Origen thought that he could clean things out of these fake, the things he knew were fake, that maybe there were some good things there. But 
how do we know it's fake? Um, number one, this idea that um, she's going to be taken to live in the Holy of Holies and be fed by an angel, and no one else ever t- mentions this, except basing it on what Proto-Evangelium says. Right. Um, the test of bitter waters is for only the woman who is accused of adultery by her husband. Uh, you get some some liberal scholars. Uh, Megan Nutzman says that the the Talmud has something about that if the um, if a woman drinks the bitter waters, her guilty partner, if she's committed adultery, her partner would would suffer, and that this is supposed to back up this idea that Joseph drank that Joseph drank bitter waters as well. Uh, no. Uh, that doesn't fit with what we know of Judaism. When the biblical gospels have Joseph living in Nazareth, it has um, the Proto-Evangelium has him living in Judea. Uh, the author doesn't seem to know that Jerusalem and Bethlehem are both in Judea because after the wise men are told to uh, go back another way, they are warned not to enter Judea. They're in the heart of Judea. And, um, you know, it has Jesus being born outside Bethlehem, outside of Judea. It has this, um, I, I've, I've heard it compared to uh, Star Trek. You know, Jesus beams out of Mary's womb and appears in this bright light. And, you know, It's one thing for, for you know, um, Jesus after his resurrection has a glorified body. But if he's beaming out of wombs beforehand, he doesn't have a human body. That's the point Tertullian's making. And I agree. Um, there's just, the internal evidences are uh, clearly against it. Yes, you had some people who believed it, um, Clement seems to give it some merit in uh, the early 200s. So you've got Tertullian against it. You've got Clement sort of kind of for it. But Clement's not recognizing it as uh, the universal testimony of the church. He says some people say this. The lines between heresy and orthodoxy were blurry. I mean, in our own day. Um there are people who will say some really solid things and get a following, and then they'll say really crazy things. William Lane Craig. There you go. Right, Neopollinarianism. That's, I think, a good thought. It's not a thought experiment. It's a real person yeah. who's really promoting a heresy. But Yes. Yeah. And so... It's, it's messy. Yes. Even if the idea, the theology shouldn't be. Right. Origen specifically, uh, Clement doesn't name that it came from the Proto-Evangelium. His student, Origen, specifically said, this comes from the Proto-Evangelium. Yeah. And he seems to have accepted it, but recognized it was not from James. Hmm. And so um, you, you've got uh, Jerome is considered the great defender of Mary's perpetual virginity. He's writing in the in the late fourth century. Jerome um, 
not only contradicts um, those who say that Mary became a wife, he also contradicts what Eastern Orthodox insists. Everyone has always believed, you know, everywhere always by all kind of thing. <laughs> he says that um, not only was, uh, was Mary a virgin, Joseph was a virgin, lifelong virgin. And so this has Joseph portrayed as a, an older man, uh, a widower with grown children, and James is one of them. That's how James is supposed to be able to tell this story. The you know, church father is a term that we need to be careful what we mean by that. Eastern Orthodox will say, we stand with the church fathers. Well, reality, no, they don't. But you start going through, who are the church fathers? Hmm. Well, Tertullian becomes a um, Montanist, so he's not counted as a church father. Origen, uh, as his, his teacher, Clement, they disagree with Eastern Orthodoxy on icons, uh, so they write them off as heretics, which they did teach some heresy. Um, but they champion them when they are supporting you know, their view of Mary. And the simple reality is there's truth and error in the early church, but no one was preaching what Eastern Orthodoxy insists everyone believed. No one was. Um, Mary, you know, early on the, the issue of the Proto-Evangelium is, was, was Jesus really human? But with asceticism, when, uh, for, the, for the ascetics, people who were attacking asceticism were attacking Mary. She becomes the champion. She becomes the patron saint of the empire. Her army, her her icon is leading armies into battle. She becomes the real focus of the faith, and Jesus is essentially pushed into the background. Yeah, <clears throat> I I think it's key to recognize this feast. It doesn't just inform their theology, right? Um, they have entire feast days based on this thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, there are two feasts that are specifically based on this story. Wow. They hymn this story, which for Eastern Orthodox, their hymns are just as infallible as their creeds. Mm-hmm. They also hymn um, Constantine being baptized by Sylvester. Mm-hmm. Um, Constantine, numerous Eastern Orthodox saints and others testify that Constantine was baptized by Eusebius. But Eusebius uh, was an Arian, and that became, and of course, Constantine supported the Arians. After, after Arius reworded his heresy, he demanded that he be restored to his office, and when Athanasius wouldn't, he exiled Athanasius. This is, you know, these people who portray Constantine as this great defender of Nicaea, they, don't know, they don't know their history. It's a mixed bag. But it becomes an embarrassment later on as they're trying to just, you know, the, the ascetics are now on the winning side. Uh, you have a, you have a, a Trinitarian uh, emperor, and so they're trying to baptize 
state, and you've got to start with Constantine. So they rewrite the history, and instead of having him baptized by Eusebius, he's baptized by Sylvester, uh, the, the Pope of Rome, which also helps Rome's claims. Yeah. But Eastern Orthodoxy hymned this. They sing, you know, you were baptized by Sylvester. But that's contrary to history. It's contrary to their own saints. Yeah. But wow. history is whatever they want it to be. Right, right. What is what is history? And um, to bring in Margaret again, right, it would be, this is Margaret, of course, it would be a mistake to dismiss the stories in the Proto-Evangelium as fantasy or worse. Early material outside the New Testament was compiled and preserved by people who were as Christian as Paul and Luke. Right there in that sentence, <laughs> oh. right, both the authority and the authenticity comes to when, the fore. One of the things in the Proto-Evangelium is that it identifies Zechariah as the high priest. Zechariah, the, the, the father of John the Baptist, is identified in Luke's gospel as a priest. Right. And the details that are given there are the, uh, are the details of an ordinary priest. This contradicts Luke, but it also contradicts all the historical records. Josephus names the high priest. And it was Simon, the father-in-law of Herod. Yeah. And it it is it's clearly someone who's familiar with uh, the gospel accounts, fam- familiar with at least some of the Old Testament, but who probably doesn't who doesn't seem to actually have known what Judaism really was like. So it names, not only has, does it have um, Jesus born in the wrong place, um, not in Bethlehem, not in Judea, uh, it has uh, Joseph undergoing the trial of bitter waters that we had never have any evidence of any man ever doing because the prescription is for the woman who's accused by her husband. Right. And they say, well, this was a special case in that they're accusing the, the the husband of being the one who has violated this oath of virginity that she's taken. Not that we have any evidence for that, but hey, we're going to insist on it. But you have Zechariah as the high priest. It conflates him with Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom is, who dies hundreds of years earlier. Uh, and yes, there are issues about uh, Jesus's reference to that. We get into that some other time, but uh, he is supposedly succeeded as high priest by Simeon. Who's Who's from what? Luke. Yes. Meaning Luke probably came before. I don't know. (laughs) Yes. And so... I don't don't know. Like, (laughs) You know, basically, it would be like me telling the story of the 1980s when Lyndon LaRouche was president. You know, and it's like, Lyndon LaRouche wasn't president. Right. Uh, uh, and I just pick him because he's a funny character. But <laughs> not, I'm not a Lyndon LaRouche guy. <laughs> Showing my age here. But anyway, you know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm telling you the history of the 1980s of um, Salt Lake City, and I tell you that, you know, I was, um, that I was a Southern Baptist who was being given a tour of... Um, the Salt Lake Temple. 
and that, you know, uh, I, I, I was in Salt Lake City, but I, I was told not to enter Utah. And the president in 1984 was Lyndon LaRouche, and he was killed, and he was succeeded by um, Al Gore. Or you know, uh, You're going to say, you're making this up. Right. Yeah. But, you know, Margaret Barker and so many others, it's like, no, 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 no. Um, one, one of the scholars, Megan Nutzman, is sometimes appealed to, you know, in the, in the Talmud, it says that the man, uh, the guilty party, if the woman suffered, the, the guilty party would suffer with her. And that this is supposed to indicate that, you know, there may be some credence to this. Uh, in the Talmud, it says that a three-year-old girl should be considered capable of sexual activity. And therefore, the fact that they waited until Mary was three years old, they, she would have had to have been examined before she entered the Holy of Holies. It's like, they're just making this stuff up. Right. They're ignoring the glaring problems with this story. God specifically said no one was entering that Holy of Holies. And we're supposed to believe that she went there and lived there for nine years and nobody ever recorded it other than this. And, right. But you know what Margaret says? It's not impossible. It's not impossible. <laughs> It's not impossible that I was taken uh, by space aliens to Uranus last night. Right, I mean, right. It's, like, it's, it's and, and this is funny, though. She says, we, we can only guess what else might have been in standard use, but you know what's good evidence? The fact that this text, rather than Matthew or Luke, was used for the nativity icon <laughs> suggests that popular memory and devotion, oral tradition, were important for many years. <laughs> so the icon becomes evidence of this text and its priority. Above those that actually came from Matthew and Luke. Do you understand that we are as far removed from, we are further removed from the reign of Queen Anne than these than the people who started making icons were from the time of the apostles? Hmm. You bring up the English Bill of Rights, and people are like, what's that? Right. You... Um, you know, we, we, we have our folk tales that have been passed down, you know, the, the ride of Paul Revere and things like this. Yeah. Uh, Betsy Ross. Um, a lot of these legends are just that. They're legends. Some of them have some basis in fact. But how many people today really know that much about Valley Forge? Right. The idea that... The, the idea that an icon of the 5th century, of the nativity, shows some collective memory is like appealing to a cartoon version of Henry VIII mm -hmm. today, showing some collective memory going back yeah. to uh, the reality of... The real Henry. Right. Not impossible. I, Not impossible. <laughs> I, but it reminds me of two things. First off, I, I can't help but point out this same Zechariah high priest error yes. was, of course, made by Joseph Smith. Yeah. Joseph Smith claimed that well, the this John the Baptist's father was a martyr because he was the high priest, and Jesus said he was killed, you know. Yeah, I mean. Well, it's like, no, you you don't get it. That's not what it says, and. You've, you've got the testimony of the Holy Spirit um, in Luke's gospel. 
what we see in Luke's gospel is, is in, in perfect accord with what we see in extra-biblical sources in terms of the ordinary priest serving two weeks a year. And they would take lots for what they were supposed to do. The high priest served year-round. He didn't take lots with people as to what he was going to do. His job was clear. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's the same basic appeal. The Holy Spirit told me better. Yeah, It's contrary to history. It's contrary to the scriptures. But it's only because you're hyper-rationalist and you must not really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. Yeah. It's like... Yeah, it's... Yep. <laughs> I yeah I and are we alone in condemning this text? Of course not. Uh, you point out in the video. Yes, Pope Innocent the First. It's not only to be rejected but condemned. That's in four hundred five A.D. Pope Galatius. Yes, not merely rejected but eliminated from the whole Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church and with their authors and the followers of its authors to be damned in the inextricable shackles of anathema forever. Pretty clear. That's for about four ninety one. But see, that's not real tradition, right? What's true? Yeah. How do you decide? That's, because because yeah. because the the because the Seventh Ecumenical Council said we're to uh, we're to venerate icons, and if we're going to venerate icons, and we have to venerate Mary, and if Mary we're going to venerate Mary, Mary has to be a perpetual virgin, and so we ignore what everybody else said. Right. This is the game they play. Right. I I just. You know, there's so many scholars that have made this point in different ways. But this text does not bear the marks of verisimilitude. Geography wrong, customs wrong, Old Testament wrong. These are clearly, at best, confused Christians writing a novel. At worst, Gnostic-leaning, if not full-on Gnostic, so-called Christians corrupting right, the well, church. One, one of the ones we don't have time to deal with, but you know, the story of Thecla... Appears, uh, Tertullian says that the, it was written by uh, a presbyter who confessed to it and was removed from his office. There, there is fan fiction in the early church by people who aren't overt heretics, right? But when somebody says this is written by the son of Joseph mm-hmm. by a previous marriage who says he was there and he saw these things. I don't think this is fan fiction. I think that this is a, this is a Gnostic counterfeit. Right. And you have to ask, why would people write these things? Right. But no, it honestly, part of the whole attraction to this thing is that I see the popular attraction to fan fiction and cosplay being spelled out in it's it's Eastern Orthodox. You can do the, the religion <laughs> religious version. Yeah, you you know you can look like you're a refugee from a Harry Potter um, movie or something, <laughs> and you know you, you've you've got sacred tradition, and these stories sound good until you start to say, what is how does this fit with? Scripture and history. Uh, actual history. Yes. And the real scriptures. Uh, and once again, listen to this. And think of Book of Mormon apologetics or Book of Abraham apologetics, <laughs> which you will, you will understand having dealt with it for, what, 20? I, 35 years. 35 years now. Listen to this. This is how Margaret defends it. And then I'll leave Margaret been, to the side. I've been a pastor here for 25 years, but I first visited here 35 years 35 ago. 35 years. 
There are obscure and unusual details in the Protoevangelium. Now, keep in mind, this is in a book. I was given this by uh, this book by a chair at BYU, actually. Mm -hmm. I've met Margaret. I, I've mentioned this to you. And yeah. so I'm kind of sensitive about bringing her up just because of the personal connection, maybe fear of man a little too much. Um, I really like Margaret as a person. I think she's incredibly intelligent. She's certainly smarter than I am. But once you, once you start studying the actual issue, I mean, even a Bart Ehrman, yeah. is he putting the Proto-Evangelium of James on the same level as the four? No, he attacks the four because they're the ones worth attacking. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I mean, that that distinction is gone. And this is why I think Mormon apologetics, so many LDS people, they don't, they don't really deal with this type of issue. They don't. And they don't see the difference between gaps in our knowledge of ancient history and made up stuff presented as if it is history. And that's the Book of Mormon. So listen to this, just with Book of Mormon apologetics in mind. There are obscure and unusual details in the Proto-Evangelium. Some doubtless due to early scribal errors. <laughs> but they did. Once again, so it's always hiding in the corner. If we had the Bible as it originally was, it would teach, you know, God became God by exalting himself, by obedience. But they do not necessarily imply ignorance of life in Palestine. Actually, that's exactly what it does. If you get the, even the basic geography wrong. This is like saying I went to Salt Lake City, but I made a point not to go to Utah. Right. But that doesn't necessarily imply your ignorance, right? <laughs> Nor of... <laughs> <laughs> nor of Jewish or temple custom, as is sometimes asserted, that is being asserted clearly here. Surprisingly little is known about the religion and the way of life in Palestine at the end of the Second Temple period. Now, that is taking a truth and abusing it. They do the same thing with ancient Native Americans uh, at BYU or farms mm -hmm. or interpreter or whatever. Um, it's like, um, is that, yes, we, know, we don't know as much as we want, but there we are things we do know Maybe they had horses. Maybe they were riding tapers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it, right. And there are. There's like, so much we don't know. It could be true. It, right. We could be on Mars. I mean, it's like, it, it is so, it's insane because it's like, no, no, no. We have a framework. We know enough to have a framework. And if there's some detail out, uh, out, out here, it's, then. Sure, it says steel swords, but, you know, maybe it was, maybe it was flint that was as sharp as steel. Right. Or written language. Yeah. Like from the beginning of the Book of Mormon, you have written language claimed to be Hebrew. No evidence among the Native American languages. None of the Native American languages show evidence of Egyptian or Hebrew. Well, then where did it do, go? Well, then Book of Abraham, you actually do have the Egyptian. <laughs> but yeah. you know, maybe it was maybe it was a medium by which he was receiving revelation. Yeah. He wasn't actually translating, even though he said he was translating. Right, exactly. And it's, it's so funny to go from denying the occult to leaning into it. Oh, it's magical it, medium, yeah. But it, it, it's just, it, it reminds me so much of Book of Mormon apologetics because they keep saying, well, the evidence we don't have yet. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. With the evidence we have, we know that this isn't there. And if, if you were to find some artifact that claims it, nobody except a few gullible LDS will believe it because it's not true of Native Americans, many of whom are still here. We could still study their DNA, study their language. <laughs> well, maybe God changed their DNA at the same time he changed their yeah, skin. Right. I mean, it, I'll finish this just really quick. The unexpected contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls are ample proof of that point. That, that to me, that is such a categorical error. The Dead Sea Scrolls being genuine first century and, and earlier Jewish texts, 
that do not do do they get the geography wrong, Margaret? Do they do they get where Bethlehem is? I mean, come on. Ignorance of Palestinian geography, daily life, and temple custom is more likely to be on the part of later readers. That what so what isn't evidence for your point? And once again, with Margaret, she's promoting a particular theological view or historical view of what the earliest Christians or the earliest Israelites, if you look at some of her other work, uh, believed. But in Eastern Orthodoxy, the stakes are even, you know, she uses oral tradition to defend this, and that the Holy Spirit is actually a heavenly mother and all that stuff, and that, you know, Isaiah sinned by going along with the Protestant reformers who were idiots, <laughs> getting rid of the goddess of the Old Testament, right? All of this stuff being leaned into by Mormons to justify their beliefs. What... um with Eastern Orthodoxy, it's informing the worship that's supposed to not have any error in it. Yes. Trenum. They're supposed to, infallible church cannot be making this error. We, I mean, deal with Josephus then. And once again, what are they going to retreat into? Mysticism, pietism, me and Jesus alone with my... Hyperskepticism with their critics, hypermysticism to accept whatever they want to accept. Right. It's it's a double standard. Yep, and and you, it can whatever issue is there, they will lean into one or the other. It's like it reminds me of loose or strict translation with the Book of Mormon, right? Where they think they can kind of make it fit something. They'll say, "Oh, it's word for word translation," but if not, it's like, "Well, that's the general idea," and they'll make it so general that it could fit anything in the ancient world. Yes. It's not proof of anything. So here, if it's informing the worship of the church and the church cannot err, you have to make a choice. Do you, right? And in the case of this text, do we, ironically, for those who claim allegiance to councils and creeds, do we affirm Jesus's full humanity or not? And, and I think you were right to aim right there because One of the things, this undermines that. They'll often quote Basil uh, in terms of... Um, essentially arguing against people who are trying to demand scriptural support. They leave out the context. The context is that um, it's the deity of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And they're acting as if no one had ever talked about this before. And Basil is rightly saying, you know, you're, you're demanding that we exegete it when it's very clearly been universally understood. Uh, there's some, there's some merit in that. Um, when somebody comes to us and challenges the deity of Christ, we should answer them from scripture. But to some extent, it's like we've already answered this umpteen times. The, but what they do is this fallacy that if you accept any tradition that is clearly biblical, then you have to accept every tradition. Mm -hmm. It's all or nothing. It's a, it's a false dichotomy. Pentecostals tell me that if I, if I don't believe um, Michael Brown actually raised, some from the, raised someone from the dead, I must not believe Jesus raised people from the dead. And it's like, no, there's a qualitative difference. Yep. I mean, for one thing, Lazarus had been in that grave for four days. Um, Michael Brown passed somebody who somebody said had died a few minutes earlier. 
And there's a difference between somebody thinking someone's dead for a minute or two and somebody being in the grave for four days. Um, no, there's qualitative difference. Uh, there are traditions that are demonstrably, you know, you can go back to Ignatius in terms of deity of Christ. You can go back to a host of, uh, the, the early church speaks very clearly. What they want us to do is, if we admit to any tradition, having not infallible but, but real authority, then we have to accept everything they ever say. And it's like, wrong. Right. They pick and choose what they want out of the early church. And the early church does not support them on things that they define as non-negotiables. We pick and choose what we like out of the early church as well. Right. But we do it on the basis not of our later tradition, but in terms of Scripture. Right. Tertullian says some brilliant things. Uh, do I believe, you know, he, he basically said this, something similar to Kirill. He told people, if you flee persecution, you will not go to heaven. Oof. It's not enough to die for Christ. You have to look for the opportunity to die for him. You know, if you hear that persecution is coming and you take your family and you retreat to the hills, you're ju just as well, uh, you're denying Christ, according to Australian. That's wrong. But I don't, I'm not building my faith on, on Tertullian. Uh, he says a lot of good things that are in accord with Scripture. They pick and choose as well, but what they do is they pick and choose on the basis of an 8th century standard. And they project that standard back rather than seeking to be corrected. Um, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but... Uh, I mentioned to you before we started the, the book, The Patristic Roots of Reform Worship. Yeah, can't wait to read it. Um, it's it's very hard to get a copy. I'm trying to convince the widow to republish it because all the copies in print are sold out. But the Reformers self-consciously went back to the early church to learn how did they do some of these things. And so, you know, you see a centrality of the word you see a centrality of Christ. You don't see a centrality of Mary, and you don't see a centrality of mysticism in the terms in terms of divorce from the Word. Uh, yes, the, the the Word is made visible in the sacraments. Yes, we feed upon Christ truly, um, not through. Um, mere memorial or not through transubstantiation, but we truly feed on Christ. How do we quantify that? We don't. The Word doesn't. The early church didn't. Um, transubstantiation comes along centuries later and gets projected back. Eastern Orthodox, they essentially believe in transubstantiation. They just don't call it that. They have in the past. Uh, Met Meadows Meadowsius, I think it is. Something like that. Anyway, the it's a change of, of substance. Uh, it's a it's a it's a transliteration into Greek of transubstantiation. But you know, they don't have a clear definition on what they actually believe. Yeah, uh, they they you know you can quote them from their councils and it's like well that's not 
really an ecumenical council or this, you know, if it serves them, it is an ecumenical council. And it, it, they talk about the confusion of Protestantism. If you lump in Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and Roman Catholics as Protestants, which is what they essentially do, uh, you, you, you lump in Swedenborgians and you lump in all these other groups and you call them all Protestant and you can say there's, there's chaos. Most of the people on that list do not hold a Sola Scriptura. Uh, Lutherans claim to. Uh, they're imperfect in it. They, I think they need to be more thoroughgoing. Luther tended to throw out the things that were explicitly unbiblical, but he kept, he kept things that did not have biblical warrant. Um, because for him, the, the, the central focus of the, of the Reformation was um, uh, sola gratia, sola fide. For the, um, for the Reformed, works righteousness was a symptom of a deeper issue of idolatry. And so it was much more a war against the idols. Great uh, book, by the way. Oh, great. Such a good book. Yes. Um, and so they were going, the, 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 the Reformed branch of the Reformation was going back to the Church Fathers, back to the Scriptures. Um, the Scriptures alone were infallible, but they were learning from, from them. And it was a Reformation in the true sense of that. It was a going back to the standards, not a reinvention. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so I, I guess to finish this point up and then we're going to, for the time remaining, talk theosis. But if you think, okay, if you have a layer of, say you have like a game where you have all these dots and you're, you're connecting the dots Let's say there's even a couple layers to that, and you can connect them in different layers. Why do you prioritize the layers the way you do, and why do you connect the dots the way you do? With Sola Scriptura, we're clear as to why we do that. If it's just some vague tradition, that surely is not going to guard against liberalism because they can hide in the vagueness. I mean, like, way easier than in the Scriptures. So once again, that red herring of look at Protestant liberalism, you better hide in the liturgy with other liberals that can hide as well, this, this <laughs> doesn't is the work. It just doesn't work. One, one of the things we point out in the video is that most Eastern Orthodox deny the, the penal substitutionary yep. atonement. Yep. Uh, you'll get some who, will, who, who say they do, but this is the thing about Eastern Orthodoxy. It's so vague. Yeah. It can be about the true self as much as about Christ and him crucified. Yeah. And um, that's not being unfair. Just look out there yourself. I mean, you've got clips to justify that. But, I mean, anybody that's been on Eastern Orthodox YouTube will see the range <laughs> as well. Now, they're going to say this uh, perpetual virginity point um, is everywhere. And this is just a kind of close one thing. The, the fact of the matter is, right, the Hel Helvidius saw the view as we see it. And mm -hmm. he's writing in 380. So they cannot say it didn't exist till. I mean, I guess they try to include Calvin. You take that on a little bit. I, I oh, even yeah. believe that for a minute. Um, maybe Calvin was not always clear on his position on this. But well, in terms of her being a virgin even after. Well, Cal Calvin Calvin didn't accept all of um, Helvidius' arguments. Okay. Uh, as 
uh, conclusive as Helvidius did. But we demonstrate in the video that Calvin rejected the perpetual virginity of Mary. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we say, um, I would say, think if you're going to go the mere Christianity route, you have got to affirm the virgin birth, birth by which we mean virgin conception. Yes. That's really what we mean is that mm-hmm. the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary was real, but by the Holy Spirit. Um, then you have, you know, and you have different people. You have virginity in partu, which is during birth, right? Nothing right. changed, but that leaves open the option that she had kids later. And then there's virginity after birth, postpartum, right? And this is often depicted by. Uh, many Rome and the East as the universal view that no one ever questioned. The fact of the matter is that's not even Jerome's view. So I just want to outline this for the listeners. The Epiphanian view, Epiphanius of Salamis, 315 to 403, the idea was children of Joseph, these other brothers and sisters that are clearly, just look at Mark 6, for example, Mark 3, Mark 6. uh, They're children of Joseph by first marriage prior to his betrothal to Mary. So they're like stepbrothers. And this is Protevangelion James is used to support this view. The um, uh, Hieronymian view, or that of Jerome, is does the brothers, cousins, relatives thing, right? Where Mm -hmm. brothers doesn't really mean brothers, even though the grammar of Mark 6 is super clear, right? Because you have, you know, who is my mother, brothers... Who are sisters. my cousins? <laughs> right. It, it, I mean, it's it's so it's so obvious on the text uh, yeah. that this t- cannot work. But um, this argument will be mingled with this earlier position as well. These two, um, I think, the reform position because of scripture and history is the Helvidian position, and that is that these are children of Joseph and Mary, but subsequent to the birth of Jesus. And yes. so, is that non-existent? No, you show in the video. It is. Uh, yeah, Tertullian, 200 AD. Right. It's it's just, once again, call the, call the bluff. If they say universal everywhere, there are very few things that's true on. I, Ironically, with Mormons, we can bring up a couple that is true, monotheism in, in, being one. But <laughs> Helvidius responded to something nearly 200 years old in the late 4th century. And... I, I love Jerome's response. Of, of Tertullian, I will say no more than that he was not part of the church. Right, yeah. Now, Cyprian, who everybody loves Cyprian, uh, Bishop of Carthage, called Tertullian the master. Yeah. You know, he, he's the man who coined the term Trinity. And yes, he did become a Montanist, but this is before he became a Montanist. And it had real no, no real connection to it. But they're going to always find a reason to dismiss the earliest witnesses. And we've got Reardon saying, you know, we, we allow every church father some heresy. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is they pick and choose. Right. But they can't pick anybody who supports icons. Yes, they can point to people supporting perpetual virginity of Mary. But even that... There's clear uh, dispute. Uh, At the same time that you have the rise of asceticism, you have Helvidius, Jovinian, uh, Vigilantius, and others that men like uh, Cardinal Newman denounce as not just heretics but proto-Protestants. Well, the reality is it demonstrates what they try to ignore, which is 
this has always been there. The Protestants weren't doing something new. This, you know, our history doesn't go back just to, to Luther or just to to Huss or to Wycliffe. It goes back through the Middle Ages. There's Berengar, there's Gottschalk, there's numerous others. And in the fourth century, we had our guys. Yeah. Do we look to them as infallible? No. no. But there was a testimony against this uh, man-made tradition that was through the power of the state taking preeminence. Yeah. And we confess the necessity of the church, but we also confess the fallibility of the church. And that model makes sense of the mess. Yes. Their model cannot account for it. Nope. And that's that's the point. That's the point. I, I get, especially to an LDS that's, let's say they've they've left, they see through all the lies that's all made up. Um, they can't leave Jesus alone. And I hope God <laughs> continues working on, yes. on you, whoever, whoever you are. Just because there's a counterfeit doesn't mean there's not a genuine. Exactly. And let's say, man, I do want the original church of the apostles. And they get attracted to Eastern Orthodox rhetoric. Yes. I just encourage you to keep reading and to start seeing the nuances even on the Protestant side of the line. We confess the necessity of the church, but we also confess the fallibility of the church. Don't let Eastern Orthodox rhetoric make it seem like you have to choose no church or an infallible church. There's a video we made called After Mormonism, Now What? And, you know, Mormons, Eastern Orthodox, they will try to create as much confusion as they can to make themselves seem like the only thing that you... They want to overwhelm you so that you have to choose them. Uh, you find in the uh, in the early church, there were heresies, but there were also disagreements between brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul and, and Barnabas separate for a time because of what uh, disagreements about how they're going to pursue ministry. They're not preaching a different gospel. Mm-hmm. In our modern day, we have, uh, we, have a Presbyterian, we have an Orthodox Presbyterian church. We have a Presbyterian church in America. We have an Evangelical Presbyterian church, Reformed Presbyterian church in North America. These things manifest various things in history. There's going to be some divisions. We have fraternal relations with almost everyone I just named. Uh, EPC is the only exception, and we have decent. Re- we don't have formal relations. We have decent relations with them, regardless. We're not part of the main line, but we have good relations with um, Baptist. We disagree with them on ter- in terms of um, baptism and church government, but the 1689 Baptist Confession is literally word for word the same as ours in almost everything. So in terms of who is God, who is man, what is sin, who is Jesus Christ, what is salvation, uh, those who take the 1689 seriously, we're in agreement with them, and we work with them. Uh, I was I was flattered. Uh, Baptist Church in South Jordan asked me to come and moderate their congregational meeting because they were having some problems and they wanted an outsider. Um, yes, there are some divisions. Are there ones that are closer to us on paper that their worship is unbiblical? Yeah. You have to use some discernment, but the reality is those who tremble at God's word, it's not that hard to find. 
if you just ask the right questions. Right. Absolutely. Should we do theosis? Let's do it. This, not, honestly, there's not a whole lot I can say on theosis because Eastern Orthodox, they use the term a lot, but they never define it very much. Right. I think the closest I got was this guy, Vladimir Lasky. Yeah. And even then, it's, it's a, know, it's, a, it's a bunch of mystical. It, yeah. Gobbledygook. Now, why it's relevant, especially to this audience, right, is it, I don't know what point... <laughs> LDS apologist uh, Stephen Robinson, uh, of course Dan Peterson. We always have to bring him up. Uh, Stephen Ricks, right? All of a sudden, it became the thing for a minute. I feel like I'm seeing a little less of it, though. It's still in the Gospel Topics essay written by Terrell Givens, yeah, um, which I have here. Uh, becoming like God. All of a sudden, they use particular quotes out of context. God, Athanasius, God became man so that man might become God. Right. To say, hey, we believe that too. Therefore, right, we're not that different. Why are they, why are they wrong? Maybe we'll start well, there. What's the difference between any form of Christian? And by Christian, I mean, I'm speaking more sociologically, theologically, um, not the, not just the saved. I'm just saying, right? Even from the East, what would distinguish every definition yeah. with the Mormon one? Well, this will be considered unfair and dishonest by some because I'm quoting from an official church manual. <laughs> we got and a we're not here. To, church manuals don't speak for the church. Apparently not. Nobody does. Yeah. But, you know, uh, achieving the celestial marriage, uh, which used to be church manual, said that... Uh, God is an exalted man. Oh, you got a copy. I right got there. a copy right here. Yeah, you know that it, he proved his worthiness for for celestial exaltation through obedience to law. Yep. No Eastern Orthodox would ever, ever say that God is an exalted man who is one among a multitude of gods. Right. Um, they they would if they rant and rave at. at Protestants, they would rant and rave so much worse at anybody saying that is theosis. Um, the um, the God of anything remotely connected to historic Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy, Oriental um, Christianity, uh, Nestorianism, uh, you pick just about anybody. Uh, Rome, of course, Protestants, every one of us would agree that there is one God, not just for us, there is one God whom the heavens of heavens can't contain. He is not, uh, the Father is not an exalted man. The idea that Jesus uh, is the picture of theosis, no. He is the picture of God becoming a man. And there's all the difference in the world between God humbling himself to become a man, to redeem mankind, and uh, creatures of dust and ashes becoming divine in that sense. Uh, we're, now, in the video, you can see that the lines become blurry in terms of exaltation. 
Stephen Robinson said something that, um, not Stephen Robinson, I mean, Stephen Freeman said something that was worthy of Stephen Robinson. <laughs> Stephen, Freeman, Stephen Freeman is a former Southern Baptist, former Episcopalian, former Anglican, now uh, Eastern Orthodox priest who has a big presence on YouTube. And he says that to see God face-to-face is to see God as an equal. That's that's, her- that's heresy. That's heresy, and and I hope the LDS hear that as well. To yes. us, that's that is unequivocally heresy. Yes, and it's the same heresy that goes back to the garden: "Ye shall be as gods." Yes, um, God says that man has become as one of us, knowing good and evil. That's not the context. You can take passages out of the context of the rest of Scripture and make them say whatever you want. Um, The psalm says, there is no God. In context, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There's all the difference in the world. The Bible is not, um, there is no God is not a proof text for for atheism in the Bible. Um, You have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. You can't impose a meaning. You can't rip things out of context. But what Stephen Freeman is presenting, arguably, I mean, I've, I've met some Mormons who would call that heresy because even though um, they would take the, the King Follett discourse and things like this, there's still a sense in which Elohim is still more evolved than we are and always will be, and he is always going to be our God. Um to me, it's it's a distinction without a great difference, but it's um, but no, it's it's the same. The same lies manifest themselves over and over. Uh, a friend of mine uh, has been working with Mormons for for many years, and my comment to him was, Mormons still aren't Christians, but Eastern Orthodox are Mormons. Um, it, it's 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 the same burning in your bosom. It's the same um, giving lip service to Scripture but but subordinating it to the church, Uh, whatever the church is saying at the moment, not what the church historically said. You know, sure, um, Brigham Young may have said that um, Adam was Elohim, but that doesn't count. Sure, he may have said that um, uh, blacks could never hold the priesthood, but that was then, this is now. You know, sure, the first presidency said back when I was a kid that the um, this was by revelation, but now the church is saying that it's not by revelation. It's by um, it, it was a policy, and it's changed. So, I mean, it, what you have are two different flavors. Eastern Orthodoxy, to its credit, does not say that man or that that God is an exalted man. Who work, who's one among a multitude of gods. Their God, the heavens of heavens, can't contain him. Um, the Mormon God, you could stack them up in the, in the temples like cordwood. They're, they're supermen. They're, they're like Thor. They're more like a Marvel super character than they are the God of the Bible. So uh, un, unbelief comes in a whole bunch of different flavors. You can have 
somebody giving lip service to all the things that you and I believe whose heart is unchanged and goes out and commits horrible, horrible sins. That doesn't condemn our position. The, the Pharisees claimed to love the, the, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus said they were their father, the devil. Right. So on one hand, when they say we can become gods on the Mormon side of the line, and as Stephen Freeman does, I mean, it, even then, it's, I guess, what practical difference is there? Let's say we have an Eastern Orthodox that is committed to that creator-creation distinction. Yes. As a lot of their scholars that I've read are, though those aren't the quotes quoted by um, Terrell Gibbons or Stephen Robinson. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. They, they purposely pick the, 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 the more um, way out ones. Right. But I think ultimately, right, any claim of similarity of a parallel has to involve more than words. It has to involve what they mean. If you have Christians who believe in only one God, the triune God, who created all man, right, and then you have quotes of early church, church fathers who believe that, <laughs> and that man is species distinct Yes. From the one God. And then they have a quote saying, become divine or become as gods or as far as is possible. Um, that's not the same as God is a man, like all gods before him, who became God by obedience to law. And then Joseph Smith saying, become gods as all gods have before you. That's not a real parallel. I, I, I hope the listener can hear that because it's not the, the view of God is different. The view of man is different. The view of time is different. The view of progression is different in, in the Christian view. All of the, I mean, especially Athanasius, Irenaeus, their emphasis is on God becoming man in Christ. Yes. Right. And so even the, the glorification, which we affirm that Paul taught it's mediated through the humanity of Jesus and it's worked by God the Holy Spirit in man in the process of sanctification. That That's not the same as obey, obey, until you can climb the steps yourself and become yes. a God just as he is. And the funny thing is, of or course. they are. <laughs> and, it, and it is a, a set of stairs or a ladder. Yeah, literally, in this but manual. In both. In both. you, And you will see this. <laughs> yeah, there's there's... Stairs in this in achieving the celestial marriage, there's ladders in a lot of the icons. Oh, you're right. Yeah. And it is man uh, changing himself. The um, they will use passages in the same way that they use um, Paul telling the Thessalonians you know, that he had told them things in word and they're like, see, see, there's oral tradition. They can't provide a single word of it. Um, Paul is expecting them to to have learned from him. But what has? But what is the binding authority? It's what's been written down. Scripture is qualitatively distinct. It is it is um, the God breathed word, as Paul calls it, and we know what that is. In the same way, they'll appeal to being partakers of the divine nature in Peter. 
as if um, it says that we're going to become gods too. No, not in in that sense, not in Stephen um, um, Robinson's sense, not in Stephen Freeman's sense. And that's not what Athanasius was saying. You read Athanasius in context. We give a, a, a quote. He says, the creature cannot become like the creator. Yes, we are divinized. We are, uh, I'm not sure what the, what the original French or Latin said, but the, the, the English translation of Calvin talks about us being deified in the sense that we are adopted by God we are given incorruptibility. We are uh, given immortality. We are sanctified. Yes, uh, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has ever entered into the mind of man the things that await us. But this idea that we're going to look at God as an equal, that's heresy. This idea that we can climb the steps or the ladder and we can deify ourselves through our struggles, you know, going out and dying in battle or, you know, this or that or the other. This is, this is, that's a false gospel. It's the, it's the Galatian heresy. Jesus has done, Jesus has done uh, some for you, but now you got to make up the, the difference. Uh, for by grace are you saved after all you can do. Yeah. You know, if you deny yourself of all ungodliness and love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, then is his grace sufficient for you. That, that's, that's another gospel. No, you have to be born again. And it's, it's not Jesus as our example, fundamentally. Yes, he's an example. We're to imitate uh, Paul as he imitates Christ. But it's, it's a matter of distortion. You don't catch a fish on a, on a bare hook. You, you hide the hook. Eastern Orthodoxy, Mormonism... They will wrap things up in some measure of truth, but there is a truth that's distorted and meant to hide that hook. Yeah. Just to, especially given, you know, some recent uh, midnight Mormons obfuscation, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to read from the book being promoted this year, Deseret Book, and you can buy it at Costco by David Ridges. This is his comment. It's a verse-by-verse commentary, which is why it's been useful, of a guy, institute guy, on the Shema, where Jesus is included in 1 Corinthians 8. This is what he says. By the way, um, though the Joseph Smith translation um, does some work in that, it actually, ironically, doesn't change the only one true God verse, which is weird. But anyway... This is David Ridges. Before Paul continues to answer their questions about eating meat left over from pagan idol worship, he takes a minute to review the true doctrine of plurality of gods with them. We know from uh, DNC 132, the polygamy mm-hmm. revelation, that all who are worthy will become gods over their own worlds and will send their own spirit offspring to those worlds to go through the same plan of salvation as we are going through here. Therefore, because of the success of the Father's plan, there are many gods in the universe. This is the comment on the verse in which Paul says there's only one true God. (laughs) This is what... Okay. There is only 
one heavenly father for us. Thus, Paul reminds these Corinthian saints that there are actually many gods out there. Yeah. So, um, and then on verse five, on the um, parenthesis on, as though there be gods, many lords, many. The prophet Joseph Smith tells us that the parentheses in verse five above teach a marvelous doctrine, namely that there indeed are many gods. This reminds us that we can become gods by the way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from our world have already become gods. See DNC 132 again. This would include their wives, DNC 132. He taught that the word gods in verse 5 does not refer to idols, or in other words, the heathen gods. That's his comment. That's what we're dealing with. So, Midnight Mormons, I don't know, I guess David Ridges, you can avoid. I don't know. All who love and believe a lie. Right. So, now, that's. That's what we're dealing with. And then when Terrell Givens, with a little bit more scholarship, says basically the same thing, but just with a few more footnotes, Latter-day Saint beliefs would have sounded more familiar to the earliest generations of Christians than they do to many modern. And, of course, he roots it as Nibley did in Creation Ex Nihilo, saying, oh, this was all perverted, and then Nicaea goes wrong. But yet he'll still quote church fathers saying, you know, that we will be made like to God or things like that. No, this is a completely different worldview in which that's happening. And even, uh, I just wanted to point out, even Origen, who they will point to for some of this, including um, they think it's a pre-existence, which he still thinks we're created. He just, he distorts when we were created. When, he when doesn't the, think we're just, God's just a man. One of the things that... LDS and Eastern Orthodox will immediately come after me on it. It's like, you're cherry picking, you're quote mining. They don't bother to show how I've misrepresented anything. They don't show any context. They just throw the accusation out there. Is that supposed to undermine everything I've said? We can deal with what Athanasius said in context. Right. We don't have to pick little snippets of Scripture, little snippets of Athanasius, we can show what they believed. Athanasius, uh, you know, in the same way the Bible says, you know, there is no God. That's not in the context of the rest of Scripture. Right. You can take that quote, God became man that man might become God. And they're like, see, see, this is the early church. No, no, it's not. Read the rest of what he wrote right. and be honest. Right. This is not the God of Joseph Smith. No. Or of any form of Mormonism. No. So uh, this is just because they like to quote Origen, especially um, Terrell Givens. This is Origen from his first principles. By the way, I want to do a bonus episode on Origen sometime. And I'm going to spend half of it talking about what he is, good and bad, and part two, why it's abused by Mormon apologists and how he's, though even he errs, he is not Mormon. He still no. is a monotheist. Yes. He still has the triune God, though sometimes he compromises too much on Christ. He, but, he, is, he is following human philosophy. Right, Plato too much. <laughs> yes, and, you know, it's, it's the same. When you, when you unanchor yourself from Scripture, you'll see the same themes over and over in history because they're, they're innate in us. I, I see the same temptations uh, in origin that I see in Joseph Smith. 
But to claim that he's supporting Joseph Smith, they can pick little pieces here and there. We can, you know, we can look at a Tertullian and say, no, what he's saying in terms of persecution, that's flatly wrong in the context of Scripture and the context of other contemporary fathers. But does he agree with us in terms of the perpetual virginity of Mary? Does he agree with us in terms of a whole host of other things? Yes. And it shows that this is not the historic novelty they try to make it out to be. All they can do is pick little peripheral things that maybe sound like this and sound like that, but nobody was teaching that God was an exalted man who proved his worthiness for exaltation and was one among a multitude of gods. Right, who became God. Yeah. Yeah, I just this is origin really quick. We are forbidden the ungodly belief that God the Father begets and sustains his only begotten Son in the same way that one human begets another or one animal begets another. There is necessarily a great difference, and rightly so, between divine and human beginning, because nothing can be found in creation or conceived or imagined which can compare with God. Yeah. So they do the same thing with scholars as well. Doesn't really sound like King Follett. Doesn't. No. In fact, it sounds like the very thing Joseph Smith said he's going to refute, the idea that God always was God. Yes, that's what Smith says he's going to refute. Uh, this is uh, from an appendix that's very helpful from James White in the book, Is the Mormon My Brother? And he points this out. I, uh, two places where Mormon apologists tend to distort sources. One is on a scholar himself, the misuse of Jaroslav Pelican, who's done a yes. lot of work, especially in the East, where he talks about how um, even in the East— they wanted to avoid the, quote, absurd and blasphemous idea that those who were deified became God by nature. That, that's what he calls it, right? And so, yeah, that, that should probably inform how you quote Pelican. And then he, they, he also shows a place where they do not quote uh, Irenaeus. They'll quote right the part that they can use. And then they use an ellipsis in between. And then they use an ellipsis, right? Um where he says the uncreated is perfect, that is God, (laughs) right? Now, it was necessary that man should, in the first instance, be created, and having been created, should receive growth. Um, So, yeah. See, they try to explain it away. Well, God's uncreated in that he was an eternal intelligence, but man's created in the sense of the body, but even though he also is... (laughs) Right, they try to do that. They spin, spin, spin. Right. And I, I, uh, I'll put this in the show notes. I really like Kim Riddlebarger's article on trichotomy as often a door to, no, to Gnosticism for that reason, because they can f- switch to spirit what they want, to flesh what they want, and yes. the scriptures to be an entirely different system. Um, just a little bit more Irenaeus. And then um, one distinction you make in the video that I think needs to get more attention, but once again, the same Irenaeus that LDS apologists will quote to say the early church was like them. Irenaeus said, Irrational, therefore, in every respect are they who await not the time of increase, but ascribe to God the infirmity of their nature. Such persons know neither God nor themselves, being insatiable and ungrateful, unwilling to be at the outset what they have also been created, men subject to passions, meaning God isn't. But go beyond the law of the human race, and before that they become men. They wish to be even now like God, their creator. And they who are more destitute of reason than dumb animals insist that there is no distinction between the uncreated God and man, a creature of today. Yeah, that's pretty different. I, I, love, I love the meme 
that shows the atheist and says there is no God and I hate him. <laughs> um, people hide from God in atheism. People hide from God in religion. They think if they can, if they spin enough, um, and if they cast up enough dust, that they they can rationalize believing what they want to believe. They don't come to the scripture to be changed. The the God of the scripture they don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, I figured out a long time ago not to really focus on abstract theology when I'm trying to witness to Mormons. You know, you give them. They seem to have been inoculated against that fairly well. So I try to give them stories. You know, they're used to stories from the Book of Mormon, stories of the pioneers, stories of their missionaries. It's a, it's a, it's a narrative-based culture, so give them narrative. Numerous times I've taken people through and I've shown them the God who drowns every man, woman, and baby on this planet, every kitty cat, puppy dog, and bunny rabbit, except for the ones that are on the ark. I take them to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. They're offering worship to God, but not what he had prescribed. God doesn't say, hey, I appreciate your trying to, to manifest the, the, the image of God in you and showing your creativity, and you know, but I'd really prefer you did it this way. No, the fire of the Lord goes out and consumes them. He turns them into the incense. Take them to Korodath and Abiram and... Uh, about this point, I, I I don't mask my southern accent as much, and I, you know, I'm I, I'm I may be ignorant, but they assume I'm more, even more ignorant than I am if I <laughs> use my southern accent. And so, you know, I I show them here are men who are of the right tribe; they're Levites, but they want to take to themselves the Aaronic priesthood, which God had said was alone for Aaron and his and his descendants. What does God do? The earth opens up and swallows them and their households, and fire goes out and consumes their 250 followers who are in the midst of worshiping God. Not a false God. They're worshiping Yahweh, but not according to what he prescribed. Usually that's about as far as I get before somebody points to to the Bible and says, that's not my God. And I say, you're right. Your God is as real as Santa Claus. That's the God you got to deal with, and you can dress it, dress up your rebellion against Him in all kinds of, of uh, warm fuzzy feelings, and in all kinds of service, and all kinds of other stuff. If you're Eastern Orthodox, you can dress it up with all kinds of props that look like they're from a Harry Potter movie. Uh, you, you can do your cosplay. You can do, um, you can do the. Um, claims of antiquity, and you can do your chanting and all this various other stuff. It's a fraud. It's not the, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. And whatever flavor you pick, you can go from one unbelief to another, to another, to another, to another. Uh, read the Bible. Deal with what it actually says. Pray for God to open it to you. If we can be of assistance, we're happy to do that. But just read it for what it really says. The you know they try to say that if the Bible 
Um, Sean McCraney used to say, if the Bible were queer, we wouldn't have all these denominations. Sean couldn't tell the same story for the same, you know, he's like Joseph Smith. He kept changing his story. The problem wasn't the Bible. The problem was he didn't want to hear it. He wanted to pick and choose what he liked out of it. The, the, the biblical gospel drives you to your knees. You're confronted by a God who is scary holy. And yet he is far more gracious than Joseph Smith ever imagined. It is not a, a plan of salvation where we can prove our worthiness. The law of God shows that we are all unworthy. There is one who is worthy, and that's Christ. And it's not walking an aisle and praying a prayer and then going and living like a pagan because you got your ticket punched. It's a new birth. Somebody who wants to live in homosexuality or adultery or drunkenness, Apostle Paul warns them, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, then that means we must make ourselves righteous. Wrong. It means that you've ignored the righteousness of Christ. It means that you've, you may have walked to now and prayed a prayer, but you've never been born again. Don't pick and choose in the Scripture. The Scripture is our infallible rule. God has spoken, and his testimony trumps everybody else's, including yours and mine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Jason, any, any last, any, anything else you want to say about the video, the reaction? We'll, of course, encourage everybody to watch it or watch it again. There's a lot in there. Um, yeah, I mean, but I've been called a demon. I've been called a heretic. I've been mocked and insulted in many, many ways. Um, we've got well over 2,000 comments. Uh the thing I keep coming back is coming back to is that no one has anything to fear from the truth but liars. We've challenged, we've done public debates. Mormons won't do debates anymore. Um, not in any one of any credibility. I mean, you, you can get you can find a, a random hothead out there. But we did debates with BYU with a BYU professor, retired institute director. We did um, some some major debates years ago. Until the word went out from farms, no more debates. Dan Peterson, yeah. That's what we heard. But um, we've we've done debates with atheists. We've done debates with Roman Catholics. Um, Not because we're contentious. Because we love Christ and we love people enough to tell them the truth. The Apostle Paul asked the Galatians, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? No. Um, I did the debate I did with the pastor of First Baptist, you know, the one that said he would tell Paul to his face that he was wrong. He came out of the gate directly or indirectly accusing me of being a Pharisee, and he didn't seem to be clear that anybody else was going to hell, but he knew I was for all the pain and suffering I was causing people. If you demonize somebody, you don't have to listen to them. It came my turn. And our, our, the debate's on the same channel as our other stuff, Ancient Paths TV. But it came my turn. I said, you know, let me be clear. I'm not here to address you as a self-righteous Pharisee. I'm here to address you as a fellow sinner who's found freedom and forgiveness in Christ. 
I've had a glimpse into my heart. I haven't had a glimpse into anybody else's. As far as I know, apart from the grace of God, I'm a monster, and I deserve hell as much as more than any homosexual I've ever met. But I'm here to implore you to be reconciled to God because there is real forgiveness. There is real freedom. And these people who say, well, I tried to pray away the gay. Did you ever deal with the real Jesus? Did you deal with the Jesus who, on the one hand, says uh, that unless you hate your father and mother, your own life also, you, you can't be his disciple. But then also says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We've created a Jesus who is as far removed from the, the Jesus of the Bible in our popular conversation as, the, as, as he is from Santa Claus. Um, God has spoken. You ignore him at your peril. Our plea to people is, read the scriptures, deal with what it says, do what Jesus said. If we can be of assistance, call us. Thank you, Jason. I think we'll end with a quotation, which I think part of you, you include the video. The Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus, an early Christian text uh, dating from, what, 117? I think they it's, land somewhere between 150 and 225 for the dating. It's, yeah, hard, it's a hard the, text to date. The, the 200 um, is about the latest I've seen for it. Most scholars, I think, put it mid-2nd century, yeah, right. around, around one. 4150. Right. And Council of Nicaea is in 325. So, long, long, long before. Yeah. And this is what a faithful Christian is preaching. And notice we're not waiting for Martin Luther for this. But when our unrighteousness was fulfilled and it had been made perfect clearly that its wages, punishment, and death were to be expected. Then the season arrived during which God had decided to reveal at last his goodness and power. Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing in his mercy. He took upon himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us. The holy one for the lawless. The guiltless for the guilty. The just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Pastor Jason, thank you so much. My pleasure.